if I were sitting with a bunch of new investors and we were all doing like a little test and what's your actual portfolio worth? And let's say when I say new investors, you know, people that have been investing just during the bull market, for example, which would be a good example. And we're all sitting around and and people were asked like, all right, you have to write down what your portfolio is worth. And then we're going to go into your accounts and we're going to have a look. I'm going to see who's off by the furthest as a percentage, right? I would probably be close to last on that pre because I don't look at the portfolio. is Mostly Money, and I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, I'm joined by Andrew Hallam. He's the author of the new book, Balance. Now, Andrew is a former high school teacher, and he wrote the international best-selling books, Millionaire Teacher and Millionaire Expat. He's the first person to have a number one selling finance book on Amazon USA, Amazon Canada, and Amazon UAE. You can access his website at andrewhallam.com. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Preet. I really appreciate being here. You know, the first question I have is, as I was going through your bio there, you were you had this number one finance book in Canada, USA, and the UAE. Now, I know that your earlier books, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, investing and whatnot. So having a best-selling book in the UAE, uh, I'm, I'm wondering which one that was. And... The question I have is they have different laws about whether or not you can earn interest. Like it's illegal in some parts of the world to actually earn interest. So I'm wondering how a book ended up being on a bestseller list in the UAE, which is focused on investing. Yeah, that's a great question. So if you take a place like Dubai, for example, Dubai is predominantly, uh, it's made up of seven uh, sorry, let's take the United Arab Emirates because that's the region where the book was, uh, Millionaire Expat was the book where it, it hit number one for business and investing. Actually, the interesting thing is since Amazon arrived in the UAE, so that would have been 2018, Millionaire Expat has actually been their top selling book overall. So all categories. Really? All categories. Yeah. So wow. which adds, you know, an even more, uh, a greater element of interest to that question you ask about interest. So, you know, when we take something like Sharia or Sharia law, however you choose to pronounce that, uh, it is illegal essentially to own a bond, for example, like to actually get, uh, or it's not so much illegal as it is uh, considered uh basically so much against Islamic tradition that's really thoroughly frowned upon. The UAE in itself made up of seven different emirates. And one of the really interesting things about it is that only about 10% of the population are Emirati. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken to the Emiratis as well. So I've done investment talks at corporations where I'll have largely an Emirati audience. And for them to be investing, you know, they could buy ETFs. So stock market ETFs, but instead of buying gold, or sorry, instead of buying uh, bonds, they would buy something like gold. So, mm-hmm. you know, based on Sharia law, uh, they could actually have a bond, uh, gold ETF in replace, uh, to replace a bond ETF. But the, the vast majority of people that live there are expatriates. So, you know, the, in Dubai alone, and Dubai is essentially just a city. So Dubai alone has 180,000 British people just British people. So, uh, you know, when they move abroad, when people move abroad and they're trying to figure out how to invest for their future, uh, you know that they're not 
giving money to or they're not contributing to Social Security or typically a defined benefit pension. So they have to invest. And, you know, when they're looking for some kind of source for it, they'll typically Google like, uh, you know, books for expat investors. And uh, and the book Millionaire Expat comes up on the radar. Oh, is that because it's right in the title? I mean, how can you miss that? I mean, that's perfect for that region. That, I mean, and yeah, I know the, the, the ratio of Emirati to, to expats is it's so low. Like you said, it's like 10%, right? Um, I've done a bunch of work in the UAE. And um, uh, I've, so I've spent some time there as well. And I find it to be a very fascinating place. Um, one of the last times I was there, I remember pulling out my my Uber app because I needed to get from somewhere to somewhere else. And one of the options where, you know, like in most places, you've got like Uber taxi, Uber black car, Uber luxury or whatever. They had Uber chopper was available on the app. And so I could choose to take a chopper if I wanted to. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a different world. Uh, in any case. Let's talk about your your latest book, which I'm sure will also be topping the charts because I think the scope is broader. So I think you've brought it out from maybe just the focus on investing and, and those books, Millionaire Teacher. These are such revered books um, because they're simple, they're easy to understand, they're effective, it empowers people. But you still find that the minority of people are really interested in taking control of their investing Predominantly, I find that a lot of people are just sort of, um, I'm going to just sort of figure this out or use some kind of product and they don't spend a lot of time on it. But I think the market for this latest book is actually quite a bit bigger because you're talking about more than just what some people might consider, you know, the nitty gritty. You're now talking about people's sense of being, their sense of purpose, their, their happiness. So can you give me your elevator pitch on your latest book, Balance? I really look at money as a tool. So in the book Balance, yeah, I'm talking about and showing people how to invest effectively for their future as simply as possible. So I have that element there. But what I try to do is look at elements of success or elements of life satisfaction and try to do what we can based on research, looking at what, what does research indicate the things are that we should or should not do to try to enhance our life satisfaction. So when you ask anyone a question, like why they do anything, like, you know, I just went to the bathroom. Why'd you go to the bathroom, dude? Um, like, it seems like a really stupid question, but you ask that question why, and it's like, well, you know, I had to go. If you keep asking why, it will relate to, the answer will relate to a sense of comfort <laughs> or it'll make me feel happy. And it's the same with anything. Like, why do you want to pursue your PhD? Or why do you want to run a marathon? Or why are you saving money for your future? You know. Every response is going to come down to, you know, it's going to make me feel happy, safe, or secure, or comfortable. And so that in itself is what is more of a definition of success than just a pure monetary definition. And so with the book Balance, I wanted to see what were the elements that contribute to life satisfaction. So I narrowed it down to four things. One was obviously we need enough money. Two is we need solid relationships. Three, we need a reasonable amount of health. And then fourth is we need a sense of purpose, a thing that gets us up in the morning, a thing that makes us excited to live. Yeah, and when you talk about balance, I really like the analogy you have about, you know, a stool or a four-legged table. And 
maybe sometimes people focus too much on just one or two of those legs and you don't have that balance, right? And so looking at all four in a more holistic way, I think is going to lead to ultimately a higher level of, of satisfaction. What I've noticed in my own personal experience is, and I think maybe you can relate as well, but about, I guess it's maybe 14 years ago, uh, I was ill to the point where I thought I was going to die. And it completely changed my outlook on life. Ever since that time, I, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me because I still have sort of leftover um, uh, effects. But it was also the best thing that happened to me because it completely changed my perspective on what I value, made me realize what I actually valued and what I didn't. And things that I used to think were not important, I found were the things that I really valued. So it was a complete 180 in my worldview. And I don't know if that would have happened, that sort of enlightening, if you will, had this bad thing not happened to me. Was there anything in your life that had, had triggered you to look at the world differently? I don't think so. I mean, I ended up, I did end up getting cancer in 2008. And for me, I, I always recognized, like, I, I'm not that smart, Preet, but there's certain things that I do get. Um, one is the fact that I've always understood that I'm going to die. And, and maybe at the time, you know, no one in my family had lived beyond the age of 62, like nobody, no aunts, no uncles, no grandparents. <laughs> and so, I mean, since then, we've had family members who have broken through that barrier, which is awesome and exciting. But I think from a pretty early age, I recognized that you know, time was finite. So I did end up getting cancer in 2008. And I didn't really ask the question, why me? I guess I kind of asked, well, why not me? You know, here I am in an oncologist office and I see little kids with cancer. And I think, wow, you know, I was 39 years old and I'd lived this great life. I had people I loved and people who loved me and I'd never experienced war or famine. And so like I had gratitude for the time that I had. And then fortunately, you know, I ended up getting through that, which was a bonus. I was thrilled by it. The The cool thing about your story, Preet, is that you have gratitude now. And so your moment was 14 years ago. And what research on this sort of thing does typically indicate is that if people do get a life-threatening illness, many of them have this awakening moment but it's temporary, like it really is temporary, where they don't necessarily, you know, years later after they've recovered, if they're lucky enough to recover, look continually at their blessings. But you're doing that. And, and that's what we all need to do. You know, it's one of the things that whether we, whether we suffer from depression or not, what helps us out is, you know, research suggesting things like gratitude journaling. And this is something I mentioned in the book Balance, where you know, research suggesting that say once a week, it doesn't have to be a big thing, it just could be a few paragraphs, but once a week, write down what you're, what you appreciate. And so generally, this is going to be, you know, hopefully things that, that you know, are, you're really connected with, it'll be your health and the things you you bring up will be things like your health, um, your loved ones, the the time they've spent with you or the time you've spent with them. These are the things that are that, that will come up. And these are the things we need to cherish. Yeah, a friend of mine um, recently posted on Facebook a, a tradition they've developed in their household where they have a jar uh, somewhere in a central location, a high traffic area, and there's a notepad and a pen. And throughout the year, whenever someone has something that was, you know, uh, made them happy, they were proud of, they would just write it down on that note, put it in the jar, and then they open it up 
uh, at Christmas at the end of the year, and they go through all the things that happened that were positive throughout the year. I thought that's pretty cool. Now I'll tell you right now, I'm not the type of person to write down stuff. Like I'm just, I don't do that stuff. Um, but I, I appreciate that it's cool. And I think that a lot of people who do do it find that it is a great activity. But do you reflect on it? So based on what you're telling me, you reflect on it. So you have this internal gratitude with respect to what happened 14 years ago and your current health. So you're <laughs> doing it pre, you're not needing to write it down. Yeah, see, and, and I can't really take credit for that in in that it, it's not something that I think, hey, I should be you know, thankful um, time and time again. It's because I can't avoid it. Because like I said, I still have effects. So I'll have stretches where the frequency and intensity of, you know, ailments has has gone down and the, the frequency has decreased and all that. But I still have like stretches of a couple of days where, you know, I just feel awful and, and, and what have you. I won't get into the details, but, and during those times, I'm like, oh boy, once I start feeling better again, I'm going to, I'm going to run a marathon. And um, when I do get better, I don't run the marathon, but I do have the gratitude. <laughs> and that's the important part, Andrew. Interestingly, maybe that, maybe the occasional symptom that creeps up, maybe that yeah. is, is ironically, that is the gift. It is. It is ironically, very ironically. You're, you're absolutely right about that. Okay. Let's, um, let's dive a little bit into some, some topics, um, uh, germane to the book. And I don't want to give away too much of what's in the book because I want people listening to buy the book and, uh, I'll vouch for the book. I've, I've read it. In fact, um, Andrew very kindly asked me to give a blurb to the book. So I had an early copy and read through it, and I provided a blurb. And actually, I'll share with you the the blurb to the listeners here. So here's my blurb that I wrote for the book. Imagine there was a multiverse where the most content, satisfied, happiest future version of yourself traveled back in time to give you the blueprint to lead a fulfilling life. That's this book. And that's what I really felt uh, about this book, and I think that's what people can get out of it. And I don't know if it was you I was talking to, or maybe you mentioned it's been a while, a few months since I read the book, but uh, I think her name is Brony Ware. Um, she was a palliative care nurse who wrote a book, the The Regrets of the Dying, and that was a story that that um, really stuck with me because essentially. Um, this person who was taking care of people at the end of their lives found that, you know, people had very common regrets, things like they never regretted, um, you know, not working more. Um, they regretted not catching up with old friends and having a beer. All the things that you say, yeah, of course, that makes sense, but we never get around to doing these things. We're so focused on the here and now. And no one looks back and says, wow, I can't believe you worked 3,000 hours in that year. Good for you. No one ever looks at that with pride. They're like, wow, what a waste of time. So tying it back to my situation, I don't think that I would have ever maybe figured that out or had that enlightening moment until something happened to me. But I think this book, because I'm not suggesting that, you know, if you want to change your life, go and have something bad happen to you and it'll change your perspective. You don't need to do that. You can get this book because I think you encapsulate all that advice and that thinking about looking back on your life and 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 sort of saying, was this a life well lived? Was this the potential that I kind of envisioned for my life or what could be? And again, it's kind of that blueprint. 
So with the with respect to these four legs, and this is you know mostly money is the name of the podcast. So we'll focus a little bit on the money first, but we'll talk about the other stuff as well. When it comes to your advice about investing, you've never wavered. You are you know a, a, a passive advocate. Keep it simple. Avoid the news. Is that way harder today than it's ever been? I think it's difficult because of the fact that you have rising asset classes everywhere. You have speculation running wild. It's especially hard for people to think about uh, responsibly diversified portfolios. You know, the, the idea that you would have any bond element to a portfolio these days, given that you know you have 12 years where the stock market has essentially just basically just continued to rise further and further and further. And so that that essence of, well, why would you want bonds in your portfolio? Why would you want diversification? Why not just follow whatever's hot? And I think people look at, it's a recency phenomenon. It's a psychological recency phenomenon where people believe that whatever is happening currently is going to continue to happen. But one of the best things we can do is just to be diversified with our portfolio to cover Canadian stocks, U.S. stocks, developed market stocks and emerging market stocks, as well as a bond element at the lowest cost possible cost. And so, you know, something like, and I really love and I talk about in the book, like the all-in-one portfolio ETFs. They're fabulous because we don't have to rebalance them manually. You know, so iShares or Vanguard will maintain a target allocation and they do that with cash flows, so they're not generally like buying and selling either to actually, you know, or they're not they're not rebalancing as we would at the end of a given year. They're able to do that with with cash flow, so that's pretty good. Um, that helps to reduce the turnover on those products. But the the fascinating thing I find pre on these things, and and we you know Morningstar's got some really cool data on multi asset class funds because they've had them for a long time now, is that people that invest in them generally just invest every month and they get on with their lives. So they keep their money just going into, you know, the multi-asset class funds. So they're not worrying about or thinking about when they should rebalance or whether they should buy Canadian stocks or whether they should add to their U.S. component. Most people these days are just chasing the U.S. market you know, because it's the fastest rising market or it has been over the last you know, 11 or 12 years. So they're chasing that. So they're getting more and more lopsided. And, you know, a lot of them are going to get hurt when the markets end up crashing because they're not going to be able to rebalance. And, you know, the the rest of the world in terms of emerging markets and developed international, it's actually priced quite cheaply compared to the U.S. market. So when there is another crash, and there will be, there will be a crash, everything will come down, the U.S. stocks plus other global market, international market stocks. But it'll be the cheaper stocks that end up recovering faster. So, you know, every sector has its day in the sun, but it's interesting how we chase past performance. And as a result of chasing whatever's doing well lately, we end up underperforming the very entities that we're invested in. And so back to, you know, Morningstar's research on cash flow analysis, where they look at how do performers or how do investors actually perform in, say, Vanguard's target retirement funds? And, and the research on that is is fascinating when looking at the posted returns of the funds and the fact that most of the investors, the average investor anyway, has over the past 15 years actually out 
outperformed the posted return of the fund itself. Because just by dollar cost averaging, they're paying a lower than average price over time. Whereas when we look at the S&P 500 index, we actually see something that's quite different. We see that the posted return of the fund is higher than what investors in the fund are actually earning. And so that's a result of people paying a higher than average price because they're adding more money when they feel good about it. So after it's risen and they add less money or they might sell after it's dropped where people who are invested in all in one funds, and I love the all in one funds that are available on the TSX now, they have that set it and forget it approach. They don't have to follow the markets they'll beat on a risk equal risk-adjusted basis. And this isn't just my opinion on this. It's all kinds of so peer-reviewed academic research on this, that because it's an indexed portfolio, on an equal risk-adjusted basis, they will beat 90 to 95% of professional investors over their lifetime. And, and the key here really is your lifetime. That's the only measurement that counts, not how something works or how much money you make this year or next year, but uh, your money needs to last as long as you do. Yeah, so this is this actually leads to one question I wanted to ask you because uh, you know I'm a huge fan of the all-in-one asset allocation ETFs as well. Set it and forget it, great. And generally, every provider will have uh, a suite of them, um, which vary in the level of uh, basically their equity to fixed income mix, right? So you can have more conservative versions. There are more aggressive ones. There's all equity ETFs and some are balanced and what have you. And what I've noticed is, you know, a lot of people who are using these products tend to, I wouldn't say a lot, I don't know what the exact breakdown is, but a number of people who will use an, an asset allocation ETF are maybe doing it themselves. So they're, they're you know, uh, putting into their own brokerage account without uh, using an advisor. Um, and what I'm finding is with actually both uh, people who use advisors or not, well, markets do really well. They may still second guess, you know, something like this, which is a, a pretty decent product, you know, all around. Um, if they were in a balanced portfolio and then they see that the aggressive one has been doing really well, they think, oh, well, I should probably switch into that one. So this then, um, I think the question needs to be asked or, or answered by you is how do you get the discipline to avoid this, this recency effect that we have? Because even people who might be picking the right products, can still kind of be swayed by what's been going on. They say, okay, well, I know I'm in the right product, but I need to ratchet up the risk because look at the returns for the past five years for the all equity portfolio. And they might think that just because they're in this asset allocation ETF, which is great, low cost, diversified, rebalance automatically all in one, they're still making that mistake. How, how do people sort of get that discipline in their portfolio management? That's a, if they're doing it on their own, that's, always going to be a challenge because of human nature so one of the things like for, for me personally i i very rarely go into my account uh i don't really know like if you'd ask me andrew what's your portfolio worth and some of your listeners are going to think this sounds totally crazy uh but i've been investing in the markets for 32 years and if you'd ask me like what's your portfolio worth i could get a i, I could get pretty close to it but um I'd be, 
you'd be off by 10 million, right? You'd be off by 10 million. Be off by quite a bit. Not, wouldn't that be nice if I were off by 10 million? Wouldn't that be nice? But I'd be off by quite a bit, like a surprising amount. Like if, if, if I were sitting with a bunch of new investors and we were all doing like a little test and what's your actual portfolio worth? And let's say when I say new investors, you know, people that have been investing just during the bull market, for example, which would be a good example. And we're all sitting around and, and people were asked like, all right, you have to write down what your portfolio is worth and then we're going to go into your accounts and we're going to have a look and we're going to see who's off by the furthest as a percentage, right? I would probably be close to last on that pre because I don't look at the portfolio. Uh, you know, it's interesting when you look at supposed fidelity studies suggesting that, you know, when they looked at what their best investors were, you know, so who are they? Are they people with economics degrees? Are they people of you know, what age demographic, what gender, uh, people that follow the markets a lot. What they found was that, you know, investing is a lot like a, a bar of soap in the shower. Like the more you mess with it, the smaller it gets. The best investors were those that had forgotten they had accounts with Fidelity or they were dead. You know, so like when you're actually comparing things, and this is the thing, you know, back to your original question, what do we need to try to do? We need to try not to look at the stock market. We need to not look at stock market news. We need to look far less frequently at our actual portfolio values. We need to do our best to care a lot less about that and focus on other things. And the less we think about it, the less likely we are to make mistakes. And th this is one of the things or one of the reasons why I also recommend robo-advisors. So a lot of DIY investors might say, well, wait a second, I'm, I'm not going to do a robo-advisor. Go with that because you know the, the fees are a little bit higher and I can do it on my own. And the lower the fees I pay, the better I'm going to perform. But I would be willing to, to wager that most of the people who are investing with a robo-advisor, because there's a gatekeeper, you know, because there's that somebody that they have to connect with who is able to talk them off the, you know, away from the cliff side, uh, if they're thinking about speculating or going more heavily into sort of a higher risk allocation, whenever there's somebody dispassionate there who can try to talk rationality into us, I think this is always going to be a really good thing. So I would guess that the long-term results of people that invest with a diversified portfolio of ETFs with a robo-advisory firm, probably over long periods of time, most of them will outperform people that have similar allocations, cheaper allocations, right? You know, cheaper, cheaper funds because they're not going to have the extra management fee of the robo. Um, they'll actually probably do better than the DIY investors. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being the case. I think some of the other advantages are the simplicity, the automation, the ability to set up an automatic contribution. It's tougher to do with a with an asset allocation ETF because I think you have to make the the trades manually in almost every case. It used to be the case that there were some ETFs. This was back in the Claymore days. So some safe who um, founded Claymore Securities, they had. Uh, the ability to have pack plans on ETFs. And I think um, those have been carried over since they were bought by BlackRock iShares. There's only a handful, but they were all just the Claymore ones. So those are the only ones I think where you can actually get the the pack plan for an ETF. Um, everywhere else, you kind of have to place manual trades. So where a robo-advisor, you know, one of the benefits is it, it's really set it and forget it. And the easier you make it, the bigger the audience is potentially going to be. Uh, in terms of the investors. So I think there definitely are some benefits 
that might be overlooked and just when you're comparing a robo-advisor to an asset allocation ETF, yes, there's you know a 50 basis point cost difference. And for the people who can do it themselves and can stick to a plan, you know that cost savings is going to be worth it for sure. But I think you're absolutely right that you know some people you may a little bit of a higher fee, but if you're more likely to have success with sticking to your plan, you might actually end up better off than had you tried to do it yourself if you weren't super confident or if you were wavering from from your intended plan. The one thing I want to point out, because um, that Fidelity story, it's a great story. I think it's actually been debunked. Uh, I think that they, <clears throat> I think that they tried to contact the people who were originally cited and no one at Fidelity was able to confirm that. But I intuitively think that it would be true if you could find statistics on people who had passed away and the performance of their portfolios. I'm pretty sure it would be better uh, simply because, like you said, investment in your portfolio strategies like a bar of soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. I love that analogy. Um, yeah, we see that with that, uh, you know, with the, the mind the gap studies. Uh, so yeah. with a dead person, for example, there is no gap in how their performance, like between how the fund performs and how the dead person performs because they're not messing around with the portfolio. So, yeah, you can't get in your own way. Right, right, right. So if the fund earns 8%, <laughs> the dead person's going to earn 8% or the person who's forgotten that they even had an account with Fidelity <laughs> versus, you know, when Morningstar publishes its mind the gap studies. And, and it's really, really compelling, especially when it includes a period of a full market cycle. So, you know, mm-hmm. a period where you're going to get a rising market and a falling market. Uh, behaviorally, you know, on aggregate, we're, humans are kind of like buffoons. Now, the idea that we do pay higher than average prices over time and we do chase rising asset classes and time and again when Morningstar publishes that those results, we end up underperforming the very products that we're actually buying as a result of our behavior and, and often by quite a bit. You know, like one point, I think the latest research that Morningstar did put out was actually based on just the last 10 years, which should have been a breeze, an absolute breeze behaviorally, because the markets basically just went up. I mean, we had that dip for a couple of months in uh, in March of 2020, but it was really, really short-lived. But even during that 10-year period, you've got the average investor underperforming their funds by about 1.7%, which is fascinating. Yeah, and that difference really adds up over time. Uh, And like you said, it's the lifetime sort of results that really matter in the end. Um, Now, I can't uh, move on from this topic without tackling sort of the the elephant in the room these days. It's got to be the number one asked question that I get. I hear a lot from people. They're getting these questions as well. And it has to do with anything to do with the crypto space, whether it's cryptocurrencies, NFTs, decentralized finance, or what have you. Do you find that people are asking you more about that as time goes on? What, yeah, what I find really interesting is that I guess from 2014 uh, until the pandemic, I was giving these, these talks globally. So, you know, I would give dozens of talks around the world each year and ended up speaking in about 30 different countries. What I would find is that when crypto had gone on a big run, at the end of the talk, everybody wanted to talk about crypto. And when crypto had dropped significantly, Bitcoin, for example, had dropped significantly, at the end of the, the speech, at the end of the session, nobody was asking about Bitcoin. And then when, you know, another period, Bitcoin rises, 
everybody wants to know about it. Bitcoin drops. Uh, nobody wants to talk about it. That frightens me to a point because the, the majority of people aren't really buying Bitcoin because they believe it's going to be a good investment. They are buying it because it's gone up a lot in value, so they hope it will continue to go up in value, and then they rationalize that belief with stories. And we know this to be true when it drops a lot and you don't hear a lot of fervor about it. And so if you really did believe that this was an important thing to be buying, you should be buying it on the low after the drops. But I guess pretty just like anything, isn't it? I mean, people will talk more about real estate when it's on a big run. And so people will talk about stocks after it's been on a big run. So perhaps you know, I'm not necessarily being fair. It's just human nature and that we get really excited about a rising asset class and we talk a lot about it while it's rising. And then generally, we don't want to talk that much about it after it drops. So, so give me your thoughts on, you know, you give a talk. You, you're, you're 45 minutes keynote, you're talking to people about responsible or prudent investing principles, rebalancing, not chasing the news. And the first question you get is, hey, what about Bitcoin? Like, does that not just piss you off? <laughs> I expect it. I know it's going to be the first question. So, you know, yeah. it, it's been since, since COVID, I've been doing a lot of these talks on Zoom with, you know, corporations and international schools. And it's, it's always the very first or second question. And I, I can just anticipate it. I know that it's going to come. <laughs> yeah, it was the same. I found the same thing. Um, and before 2014, it was it was gold. You would go and, you know, talk about here's how you build a portfolio. And everyone would come up and talking about because gold was on this, you know, big upswing in its trajectory and, and whatnot. The, the more things change, the more they stay the same, really. You know, it was gold. Now it's Bitcoin. Um, and without making comment on, on, you know, whether or not people, you know, what it's going to, I have no idea. I don't, any asset, I don't know what it's going to do in the next year, two years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. Okay. So let's, let's park the investing talk a little bit and let's focus quickly on sort of the, uh, the three other, uh, quadrants. And before we started recording, you were telling me a really cool story about a recent trip to Italy. And I think this ties into, um, one of the quadrants in balance, which is maintaining strong relationships. So one, can you tell me about how you've determined that was a pillar or a leg in, in, uh, in the book? And then tell me about this story about, about Italy. I, I thought it was a charming story. You know, it's, when, when looking at research on human longevity, for example, like you know, Harvard's had this eight-decade-long study um, on adult development, and so you know, they started with a bunch of Harvard students. It extended to a bunch of inner city students in Boston. It studied now and their children. And this eight decade long study has really shown that when it comes to something like life satisfaction, like what is it that actually makes us satisfied? It's it's generally not money or genetics that's 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 most paramount. It's the relationships we have with other people. And the relationships we have with other people also help to extend our lives. So example of, I use an example in the book of uh, Rosetto, Pennsylvania, where, you know, these immigrants had come in from Italy, they, they found this little town, and it was incredibly social. But these people lived a freakishly long time. So scientists came in to try and discover, like, is it the water? Is it their level of physical activity? What are they eating? And what they found was that it was freakishly social. Like there, there was an open door policy. Kids are in and out of each other's homes. They're all, they're all eating together. They've got these cool, I think they had 22 
civic community clubs for a town of like 2,500 people. And then what ended up happening was when people in the 80s got the sense of the American dream, they started buying more stuff and wanting to build bigger houses and move outside of the nucleus of that town, their mortality ended up being such that it's no longer this medical marvel. And and Dan Bootner did an interesting uh, wrote an interesting book called The Blue Zones, too, where he looked at different places in the world where people live freakishly long periods of time, and he found that everybody's diet was a little different. I mean, some people ate meat, and other people were vegetarians. Uh, but what the, the common variable, the common denominator here was that they were really social communities. And they also continued to work in some capacity, like part-time work, contributing to the community in their way. And so like back to your question about you know, the social aspect. And, and for me, I invited a bunch of guys who didn't know each other to spend 10 days together in Italy. And I said, well, we'll ride bikes together. And I just wanted to bring a group of people of different cultures, different, slightly different ages, um, definitely different interests in one spot because I felt at some point in my travels, I'd connected with each of them and I thought bringing them together would be kind of cool just to watch socially what ended up happening. And, and you know, when, when we're spending money on things, I spent money on that. Like I, that was something that I, obviously all of us did. You know, we spent money on this experience that none of us are going to forget. And the stories are just going to get better every year. And these people did connect, like they connected with each other and, and they've all become friends. This is one of those pivotal quadrants with respect to life satisfaction, our actual connections with other people. If I had spent that money instead on a newer car, you know, and, and I was chatting with my friends 15 or 20 years ago around a campfire, I probably, when we're sharing stories, we're not going to talk or I'm not going to talk about the car I bought in 2021. Uh, I'm going to be talking about sharing stories about some of the goofy things we did in Italy and bringing these guys together and just the friendships that were developed through that process. So like when we do spend money, you know, and, and this is really quite common. I mean, we know what the research suggests about spending money on material acquisitions versus spending money on experiences and spending money on experiences really do enhance your life satisfaction and uh, your longevity. Yeah. I, I forget if it was you I was speaking with uh, a few months ago when we had just a sort of a social call. Um, I spend zero on on cars. I'm a car guy. I mean, I went to school to try and become an, a professional car racer. Uh, so I'm big into cars, but I don't own a car. But I do spend um, a, not an insignificant amount on car-related stuff. So the single best day of my life single best day of my life was in uh Belgium at this racetrack called Spa Francorchamps and I may have told this story on the podcast before so I apologize to the regular listeners but I went and I rented this little race car and it was a car that was inexpensive enough that if I totaled it you know I'd be like oh that sucks but it's not going to bankrupt me I had been looking at these other race cars where the deductibles were like 100,000 euros like all right that would be great but the risk is too high and that's too much. And really, it's my first time on this track. If I really want to push it, I can take a car that I don't care about. I can actually like, you know, give her. And I think the whole cost of that day was like, it was like six or 7,000 bucks or something like that. Zero regrets. Best money I ever spent. Single best day of, like everything about this day 
was better than I had built up in my head for the 10 years. And so leading up to it, I was worried that I had overhyped it in my head and that I was going to be disappointed. And everything, every aspect of it was even better than I thought. It was, yeah, loved it. But will I spend uh, that kind of money on a car? Not anytime soon. So it, it it is interesting, you know, when you talk about spending money on, you know, experiences versus things and whatnot. And that was a very social event. A lot of people from all over the world, and we just had this instant bond because we had this common love. So this event that you um, organized with your people that you had met individually in other walks of your life and brought them all together for the first time, who came from the farthest? Uh, who was furthest? Italy was a central spot, so nobody came further than anybody else, I don't think. Some came from Tennessee, uh, others from Dubai. So others from the UK. So, uh, and then a couple of guys from Canada as well. So who came the furthest from Italy? I don't know. (laughs) But all far. Seems like it was all pretty far. Were there any actual Italians on the trip? No Italians this time. But but I I have nothing against adding some Italians. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure. And and do you think that this will become a regular event for, for some sort of microcosm of that group or something? Yeah, I did something similar two years before and I plan to do I continue to do something like this every year and and these are going to be different things but I love bringing different people together who I just get a good sense would socially mesh uh, to me that's really exciting like watching watching new relationships develop to me that's super exciting it's, it's funny when you know the last chapter of balance I, I talked about it's probably a, one of my favorite topics is the perception of time and how time is elastic. And, and if we are always doing the same thing, time starts to really accelerate. And so, you know, when you think back to when you were in eighth grade, it, it, it seemed really slow because of all the things you were going through. You were, your body was changing, your mind was changing, you know, you had a best friend, then you didn't, you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend, and then you broke up. So much was going on. And, and research suggests that we actually measure time by alternative stimuli, and that if we can inject alternative stimuli into our lives, we can actually, we may not be able to chronologically affect how long we live, but we can stretch our perception of it. So your example, like that race car example, super, super cool. Now you could go back and you could repeat that, which would also be really cool. And, or you could do something else that adds a different stimuli, a different type of memory. And so like a faster car, a faster, (laughs) a much faster car. And, and you know what? I think you could afford the hundred thousand dollar deductible. So you go and get that car and and I want to hear all about it. I want to hear it. I'd want to hear that story. Absolutely want to hear it. Well, you know, I think uh, what you just talked about, uh, endlessly fascinating because I think a lot of people may have the same experience where you go on vacation somewhere and it's like day three of day seven and you think, oh, you know, time's running out and you're like, oh, it's only 11 o'clock and I've already done so much. I've always found that when I'm doing something completely different from any regular routine, it does feel like I'm more in the moment. There's time is going uh, more slowly and which is great, especially when you're on vacation because you can enjoy it and you do things like I take a nap and you're like, oh, we still have a couple hours until dinner. What do you want to do? Oh, let's go play tennis or let's go do this. Let's go do that. It's everything except work and it's it's great. It, uh, it feels like it lasts longer, 
So basically, the take-home message is take more vacations. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> um, I'm going to take that advice to heart. Um, my last question for you is about your siblings. Have they um, collected on the $100? Oh, you know what? You've got such a good memory, Pre. You, you remember that? You read that <laughs> book like four months ago. My sister sent me a... A, a photograph. So they had just received a copy of the book. So actually, they actually, <laughs> they actually ordered it. And you'd think that I would be like kind enough to give it to my sister, but right now I'm in, pa- <laughs> I'm in Panama. I'm in yeah. Panama. Uh, the book, you know, officially gets released January 18th. So right now as we're speaking, it's like the 13th, but my sister ordered on, on Amazon. She has a copy and I'm, I'm just waiting. So I have two sisters and I have a brother and I'm just waiting for them to read the acknowledgement section. And, uh, and as I said in the book, I think my money is safe. Uh, so for, for listeners, basically what I ended up saying was that uh, you know, I thanked everybody for supporting me, for writing the book, and uh, thanked my, my, my wonderful family, my brothers and sisters, and then said, uh, if, you know, Sally, Sarah, or Ian, you end up actually, you know, getting to this point and reading this, then, uh, then I'll give you a $100 bill. But I feel my money is safe (laughs) (laughs) actually yeah keep me posted send me flip me a note if they actually do i don't think they listen to this podcast it's statistically unlikely um okay so at the end of every podcast everyone gets a commercial um you got a couple minutes to talk about anything you want promote the book i'm i'm assuming so the floor is yours wow the floor is mine wow well uh yeah i would really appreciate if uh if people did check out my book balance and it's just something that I was really proud of to to put together. People often ask me questions like, "Hey, you're a finance speaker. You're you're you know a finance writer. You must really like money." And for me, or like the idea of personal finance, and I'd always say, "Well, no, uh, actually, no, that's not it. It's for me. I really like life. I savor life, and so I wanted to write the book Balance to truly reflect that value." Excellent, love it. And where can people find it? It's available at brick and mortar retailers, and uh, should be able to find it at any online retailer as well. Excellent, Andrew. It was a pleasure having you on. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much, Preet. I really appreciate it.